This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I don't even know if I should call this a message, but if I don't call it a message, it gets weird too. Uh, it is, but it's like a tribute, and it's a simple thought, and it flows out of an email that I received this last week uh, hearing about the passing of one of my heroes, and it's tough when one of your heroes passes away, and I don't have many left. <laughs> uh, I've, ever since Ellerslie started, in fact, the summer before Ellerslie started, four heroes died in one summer. And I remember feeling the thinness of the Christian world, sort of like the pillar system that I had grown up around was no more. And I had this realization, even though I didn't like it, it was like a haunting realization that maybe the pillars are shifting to my generation and that my generation is now supposed to be the pillar system. I, you know, when you're, when you're used to having pillars out there, that isn't something that is actually very easy to swallow. And I, I've gone through that even in the formation of Ellerslie, is I really don't want to have to be a pillar. God, Lord, I want you to build me into one, but I would prefer that pillar system to just remain forever and always. And yet that's not God's way. You could just imagine the early church when the disciples, the first apostles were mar being martyred and no more. And when Paul was uh, getting his head severed from his body, it's like just that loss, because how do you replace a Paul? How do you replace a Peter? How do you replace a James and a John? And I could say that just in our message, how do you replace a brother Andrew? Most of you in here might have even forgotten that he was still alive, <laughs> because when you read his stories, you feel like he's from the old pattern. He's from the yesteryear saints, the ones that we wish were still around, but, you know, have passed on, and, you know, it's from a day long ago, when in actuality, he was still living, still working, still laboring. However, he learned a lesson from the book, God's Smuggler, and that is when you have a best-selling book about your undercover antics, suddenly it makes your antics uh, known to those that you're trying to pull the antics on. And so as a result, the Soviet government became very aware of the work of Brother Andrew because of the book God's Smuggler. So he learned a few lessons over the years, and that is you, maybe we need to fly a little more undercover because his entire job description was to help those in persecuted countries and to encourage, and to strengthen that which remained before it died. And so I have a, a deep love for the man, Brother Andrew, and a deep love for his calling. There is something about it, it parallels mine, but in a very different way. Uh, when, when he referenced uh, the words of Christ to the church at uh, Sardis as sort of his chief motto, uh, and mission, which was to strengthen that which uh, remains before it dies. 
for Leslie and I, when we were going through this book, God sort of highlighted that for us, like with that heavenly highlighter pen and circled it. And that has become our life verse. That is like what we do here at Ellerslie. We strengthen that which remains before it dies. We are a defibrillator. A spiritual defibrillator is a great description of what Ellerslie is. We don't try and do all things, but we know we have a role. And that is, if there is a spark, to fan it, to blow upon it, to strengthen a weakening church and not accept that fire going out. And if there's a heartbeat, even if it seems to not be there, but there's still life in the body, hey, get that heartbeat beaten again. And that's, that's the passion. And it's not just me. I think it's us that share that as a passion. There's a reason why we gather together. And that is not just that we have a local, or I always call it a lower C, lowercase C passion for the local church, which we do, but it's a passion for the capital C church, and it's to see the church at large strengthened. So we become a servant body, not to just be our own little strong church, but to be a church that serves the church. And so that's a brother Andrew calling. That's what he did. So like I said, I don't even know if this is a message, but it is. It has a, a point to it. It's just a very simple point. It's almost too simple for me as a pastor to give and call that a message. It's like, that's too simple. At the same time, I do believe that this too simple message could be too simple on purpose because maybe it's just that simple what we need to hear this morning. The message sort of gives away my too simple uh, thing, but I'm going to not explain it yet, and it'll come out and make sense why uh, it's called this, but more radical. And there's a cool graphic that Annie put together uh, for the the cover of this one. I really like that. Well done, Annie. Uh, But there's a picture of Brother Andrew. He was 94 when he passed away. Uh, You see him in his younger years. He came into sort of understanding the Christian community in the 50s uh, through the book God Smuggler. It was right at the, it was the Cold War season, right at the end of World War II. He was in World War II, like as a soldier uh, for the, uh, the Dutch. And so he's right in this zone of time where he was, he's part of a generation that most of us no longer see anymore. In other words, there's not that many left, especially that are cogent, have a clear mind, that can articulate things, and so he was one of the last of that. And so I, I definitely miss it. What is oftentimes called by many the greatest generation ever, which is such a funny statement if you study World War II, it was debased, it was you know, self-centered, and suddenly everything turned, and they had a cause. Suddenly Hitler congealed the, the good guys, if you will, and they suddenly said, we have something to fight for, something we're willing to die for. It's a very interesting story, but out of that is going to flow some heroes, like Corey Tenboom and Brother Andrew are sort of like in that same time period at different ages, but they come out of this storyline. Richard Wormbrand comes out of this storyline. So celebrating Brother Andrew, uh, he passed away what, September 27th, so just a few days ago. And the reason this was even inspired is Annie Weshi was the one, she sent it out to our staff. She uh, I think her dad had heard the news and put together a compilation of quotes, a compilation of memories, and so she passed that on to us, and it deeply stirred me. I don't know what the rest of the team thought about it. I could just guess, uh, but 
You know when you send an email to a lot of people and no one ever responds because it was sent to a lot of people? That was like her email. You'd think we would have responded, but all of us, I think, in our own way, were processing, probably looking at the links, and then forgot to tell Annie, thanks, Annie. <laughs> but it was really moving to me just to remember, and I never want to forget those that have invested in me. I think paying tribute is an art form in the church that maybe has gone a little into disrepair. And one of the things that I started doing a long time ago is every time I would read a book that would impact me, I would write the author and I would tell them that. And you know, it's like, I, whether or not it makes any difference, I don't know, but I know it has always blessed me when people go out of their way to communicate and to encourage. And so uh, I never communicated with Brother Andrew. It sort of bothers me, you know, now in hindsight. It's like, you know what? That would have been a great idea. Leslie even got mad at me after she heard he died. It's like, how come you never invited him to Ellerslie? It's like all those thoughts come out, you know, once you... Uh, <clears throat> so here's some cool pictures back in the day. I really like that picture on the right. There's something about it. It's like, I want to be that guy. Uh, there he is, you know, in China, you know, in everything's difficult, and there he is. Sort of, even his stance is sort of a cowboy stance. I don't know if I can uh, say it, but it's sort of like, I want to grow up to be like that guy. So this is, even at the end of his life, in his 90s, those that work for Open Doors, actually, you know, when you try and describe who Brother Andrew is to all these young renegade Christians, all these guys are like, I want to go where I'm not supposed to go. I want to take the gospel where they say that I'm going to die if I take it there. And that's who surrounds him. That's who he's raised up. That's the sort of characters that he disciples. So you have to acknowledge, like in here, it's like, yeah, I like that. And yet, so here's his job description. You know, some people are CEOs, some people are COOs. I'm not sure what the, uh, I think this is a C-A-L-R-T. I don't know what that sounds like, Callart. Uh, but he's the C-A-L-R-T, the chief adventurer and lead risk taker, even in his 90s. It's like this guy is still setting the pace for the younger generations after him. I'm going to say generations when you're in your 90s. And he's still setting the pace and setting the example. He's like, let's do it, guys. It's like, well, let's remind you, uh, Andrew, that you are in your 90s. And yet, he still was on the front lines, still laboring for the gospel. There's something just in that, even though that's not what my message is on, that's very, very important for me. I have seen many Christian leaders burn out. I have seen many Christian leaders fall into moral compromise. I have seen many Christian leaders leave the ministry, not just leave the ministry, leave their faith. How much more valuable is it for me to see a man who is consistent all the way to the finish line. That, to me, is one of the prized attributes of this man's life. To see someone not just live strong when they're 30, but to live strong when they're 40. And not just when they're 40, but 50, and then 60, and then 70, and then 80, and then 90. Lord Jesus, raise up more Brother Andrews. So qualities that stirred my soul. B-A stands for Brother Andrew, by the way. So the B-A daring. This guy, he makes you uncomfortable when you read his stories. And all you, I mean, I am very opposite in personality than Brother Andrew. But I esteem his personality. He's one of those guys that would be like, uh, 
hey, have you ever gone bungee jumping off of a cliff? And be like, no, it's not really the type of thing I like to do. He's like, why not? And he'd be like, come on, I'll show you how to do it. He's that sort of guy that just sort of rubs me the wrong way because he's always wanted to do something crazy and life defined, you know, death defined. And I'm not that way. I'm, I'm the guy who's going to reason it through and be like, no, that would be unwise. Okay, so I'm like the, the bummer in the situation because I'm too wise, right? I'm too thoughtful of my circumstances. And, but I don't like that necessarily about myself. Does that make sense? I want to be more like Brother Andrew. So he scares me, but I like it. In fact, it's one of the qualities that most endears me to him is something that I'm not strong in. I should say it different. I am extremely daring when it comes to spiritual maneuvers. I'm not daring when it comes to bungee jumping, jumping out of planes and things like that. He's sort of both, and that's what I like about him because I esteem daring and I know the importance of cultivating it in my spiritual life. I just need that extra measure to be like, you know, Eric, for, don't think it through this time. Just jump. And that, that would be helpful to me in certain situations. I'm going to call it the Brother Andrew wink and smile. He's just a cheery guy. So in every situation, when everything gets hard and, and the weights increase, his smile and the twinkle in his eye seems to increase too. He's one of those guys. Like all goes dark and the lights go out and then you hear Brother Andrew's voice go, isn't this fun? That's, it's that guy. And I appreciate that personality in the church. It's, it's one of the rare gems that we need is the man who laughs in the face of difficulty. The man who winks at you when you're being led to the slaughter. You know, and you're, you guys are both walking to your death and he winks at you and smiles like, isn't this great? We get to go home to be with Jesus. He has the right perspective. He has quicker access to the right perspective. Maybe I could say it that way. Because it's not like he doesn't struggle the same way we do. It's just that he somehow is able to access it quicker. And it's a gifting that, that he has. The Brother Andrew magnetic attraction to challenge. If someone says it can't be done, it goes to the top of his to-do list. It's like, well, then that's what I want to do. And again, that's not necessarily the way I'm wired, but I like it. And I like being around that sort of person, and I want more of what they have. So here's Brother Andrew. This is a, I, I got this off of the Open Doors website. They had a tribute to him, which I would encourage all of you to go look up. It was really powerful. And this is, it's sort of like his words, probably from God's Smuggler, because uh, I remember the story from God's Smuggler but then with some uh, simplification from the website itself. So you'll, you'll see what I mean by that as I go. When I pulled up to the checkpoint, so he's smuggling Bibles into Romania, on the other side of the Danube, I said to myself, well, I'm in luck. Only half a dozen cars. This Romanian border crossing should go swiftly. But when it took 40 minutes to inspect the first car, I began to worry. Literally everything that family was carrying had to be taken out and spread on the ground. So this is the commentary from the website. Brother Andrew waited. Every car ahead of him went through the same routine. Dear Lord, I said, as, the last, as at last there was just one car ahead of me, what am I going to do? Any serious inspection will show up these Romanian Bibles right away. I know that no amount of cleverness on my part can get, can get me through this border search. Dare I ask for a miracle? Let me take some of the Bibles out and leave them in the open where they will be seen. Then, Lord, I cannot possibly be depending on my own stratagems, can I? 
I will be depending utterly upon you. Now, who in their right mind, when they're approaching the Romanian border, is actually going to dig in the box that you're hiding them in, take them out, and set them out in the open? He's like, hey, I need a miracle anyways. And there will be no way that it's based on my ability to be cunning. So he sets them out in the open. Brother Andrew uncovered several Bibles from their hiding places and piled them on the seat beside him as he pulled up to the checkpoint. He stopped and handed the officer his papers and his passport. The officer looked at me, this is Brother Andrew speaking, my photograph and my passport, scribbled something down, shoved the papers back under my nose and abruptly waved me on. Brother Andrew was shocked as he slowly pulled forward. This is Brother Andrew speaking. My heart was racing, not with the excitement of the crossing, but with the excitement of having caught such a spectacular glimpse of God at work. How are you going to catch a spectacular glimpse of God at work? Because all of us love these stories, but not all of us are inclined to putting ourselves in the situations where you get to enjoy these stories, where you get to tell these stories. And that right there is part of what this message is. It's saying, I don't want us to just esteem the life of a brother Andrew. I want us to truly be moved. I want us to be inspired practically and tactically in our life to say, okay, I'm tired of living with my excuses. I want to live this life fully. So this, this one, this title on the screen is going to need a little explanation. In my mom's family, my mom has uh, three sisters and they all use the same term, and it's an affectionate term, and it's stinker, okay? So, and I don't know if any of you have a family like that, where, so my aunt would always like, Eric, you're such a stinker. And she would say it with that tone of voice that was very affectionate. It wasn't like a put down, because if I thought about it, it's like, wait a minute, you think I stink, right? No, but it isn't that you stink, it's that you're cute. Like a little baby is a stinker. I mean, truly, they are, uh, right? <laughs> But they're adorable, too, and you love them, and you want to pinch their cheeks and, uh, and cuddle with them, right? And that's what they're saying. So this is all my aunts called me stinker gro growing up. I was, you know, all the other cousins, and, uh, you know, were called stinkers as well. But so it wasn't a negative thing. But what it also showed, because usually when I was called a stinker is when I was doing something, you know, like playing a practical joke or doing something that had a little wink and a smile in it, too, and then I would be called a stinker. So I'm just going to get out on the table what I mean by that. Brother Andrew was a stinker, a spiritual stinker, okay? He was playing, he was, he was duping the enemy, duping guards, and I mean, he, this guy was playing a game the whole time, and he was having fun. And there's something about his life which is so intriguing to me because I would prefer to have a life that is changing the world for Jesus Christ and loving every minute of it. And that's just sort of a description of Brother Andrew in a nutshell, so I'm going to say it this way, a spiritual stinker, finding great delight in having everyone else around you stress out because you are risking your life for Jesus. It's like your poor mom back home finding out what you do. It's like, Andrew, Andrew. Now his real name wasn't Andrew, actually, Brother Andrew, it's actually a code name. But I like sort of continuing uh, that understanding. It's a code. He lived such a life that he needed a code name. I want to have a code name. That just sounds fun. But when you actually live your life in such a way that it creates a ripple effect, some of us want to remove the ripple effect of our life where a rock falls into the, the water and we just want to fall into the water and it doesn't affect any of the water around us. But one of the principles of spiritual obedience is it must create a ripple effect. 
you can't stop the ripple effect, which is really hard when you know the people around you are not in agreement with what you're doing, and they don't think you should do it, but your decisions actually affect them. That's hard, and that's one of the enemy's tactics to sabotage and to stifle us from obedience because we don't want to rustle up the lives around us. However, God designed our spiritual obedience to do exactly that in the most positive sense. So, a spiritual stinker is one that's sort of like getting, he's, he's the guy at the pool that jumps in and does the uh, cannonball and doesn't announce that he's doing it. And so everyone on the, on the side of the pool, you know, that's sunning and trying to look all good and those all dry, gets soaked. It's a spiritual stinker, okay? That's exactly what, he's not just creating a ripple effect, he's cannonballing in spiritually and everyone in his life is like, oh, how am I supposed to respond to this? You have to make a choice when you run into a brother Andrew. Either you recognize that you yourself need to wake up and start living more aggressively for Jesus, or you just get mad at the guy, right? And he was willing to take that risk to say, I want to change the world. I don't want to sit on my thumbs, and I know it's going to make other people uncomfortable. So be it. I like it. A spiritual stinker. So a rare man that finishes well. He was just as much a stinker at the age of 94, and he was just as intentional to share Jesus at the age of 94. Have you ever had it where you have seasons of intentionality where it's like, you know what? (laughs) I'm going to share Jesus, you know, every day, you know, I'm going to find someone to share Jesus. And you have this great season of your life. And then you get sort of busy and you get distracted. Something happens. I don't know what the something is, but we all know the something, the something that happens. And suddenly you're off your game, and then you have someone that comes into your life or someone that comes into the church and gives this nice message on sharing Jesus. And you're like, what? How did I lose that? And it's really frustrating. One of the things I love about Brother Andrew is every time you look at him, he seems to be intentional in that direction, which gives me hope. You know, that as I get older, there's this whispering voice that says, yeah, you need to slow down. Yeah, you can't do as much as you used to do. I want to live my life like Brother Andrew. I want to live my life. The other person that we always associate with Brother Andrew because they were associated is Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom, how old was she? Do you guys remember when she had a heart attack? She was just about to go speak. She had a heart attack. 88, you know, it was, it was very high up there. The time when you're supposed to be retired. She's unwilling to retire and she has a heart attack. And you can just imagine all the counsel around her. Honey, you need, to, you need to take it easier. I mean, this is really hard on your body to travel all over the world to share about Jesus. And she doesn't tell anyone that she had a heart attack. It's sort of like, shh, don't tell anyone. And then she goes out and speaks in front of this large audience. And she lived another like eight years strong for Jesus, as some people would call it, dying in the harness or dying with with your boots on. I want to die with my boots on. I do. And I don't know if that stirs you guys, but there's like something about the Dan and Sandy McConaughey model is also, it's the same thing. It's the brother uh, Andrew model. They should have retired a long time ago. They, they have every reason to. They have everyone in their life would say, you're supposed to retire, you're at that age. They just freshly left to go on the mission field to Belize. And by the way, if you don't know Belize, it's not as easy to live in Belize as it is in America. They have chosen a harder life instead of an easier one. It's like, okay, more of that. That's the Brother Andrew model. He chose a more difficult life enjoyed every minute of it, and yet he never retired. 
He never went into, you know, the old person's home and, you know, just turned on the TV and said, it's my time to veg out. He said, I have one shot at this thing and I want to live fully for Jesus Christ. I want that cultivated in me. So the question, this is the question that was asked to Brother Andrew, and this is the whole point of the message. Remember how I said this is a very simple message? I'm sort of milking it a little. Do you have any regrets about your life's work? So before I give you Brother Andrew's answer, I want you to ponder your answer. You've had a span of living on this earth, and I'm not trying to rub it in like if, if you feel like you've really blown it and you haven't maximized it. That isn't my point. It's to just sort of lift it afresh to the surface. Like, are you living fully? Or are you living at sort of that 10% level of givenness? And it's just like, well, in the future, I'm going to amp that up to like 75%. But right now, I can't do that because I need to focus on my worldly issues. I, I've seen many people that have said, when I make my fortune, then I will focus all on Jesus. And it's interesting because they get close to making their fortune and then something will fall out on it. And they're always in this cycle of trying to get to a financially stable place so they can fully give themselves to Jesus. It's a trap. And what, what I see in a question like this is it lifts it to the service and freshly enables us to analyze our life and our intentionality rating. What are we doing with our life? Because it doesn't mean you have to be on the foreign mission field to be using your life well. Most of us know if we're taking our time in our life and we're dedicating it to Jesus, or if we're sort of taking most of our life and saying, okay, this is mine, and Jesus, you get my little 10% tithe. And for some of us, a 10% tithe would be a very generous uh, statement uh, because we're not giving them even 10%. However, if you study the New Testament terrain, you're going to recognize that Jesus isn't asking for a tenth, which is what tithe means, He's asking for it all. He purchased the whole kit and caboodle. He bought us. Our bodies are purchased. Our lives are purchased. Our talents, our gifts are purchased. Our time here on earth doesn't belong to us. It's his. But the question is, if we know that intellectually, what are we doing practically in response to that? And when I see a brother Andrew, I say, hmm, I think there's more. I think that dial can actually turn up higher. When you're the one in the room with the, your dial turned up the highest and it's only at 10 out of 100 and everyone around you is like, wow, you're radical. Then it's easy to justify why 10 is radical. But if all of us in here just had Brother Andrew walk in, suddenly the knob turns up higher and we're like, huh, I think our radical isn't very radical. And that's another reason why I really love Brother Andrew. He turns up the knob too high in our generation. Because we're the radicals in this generation, right here. We're like, I'm in, fully in. And then God could almost speak in through the wall and go, are you sure about that? You see, I'm not exactly sure that we are the radical ones. I think we sometimes just con ourselves into thinking we're the radical ones. Do you have any regrets about your life's work? So here's part of his answer. I'm not going to give the full one because I don't want you to see everything just yet. If I could live my life over again, I would, and then I cut it off. What would he do? If he could live his life over again, there is something that he would do different. Don't, aren't you interested to know what Brother Andrew would do different? If he could live his life over again, what would this guy do different? Because I have a hunch if he needs to do it different 
I probably really need to do it different, right? So I'm fascinated. What is the answer to this? If I could live my life over again, I would be a lot more radical. What do you do with that statement? That is very stirring to me. Because I see a man who's lived 94 years, and he's evaluating. That's a good time to evaluate your life. And even Brother Andrew is going to say, if I could do it again with what I know, I would even give more. Now, I don't, the word radical doesn't translate very well anymore uh, to us. And I don't have a better replacement word. I think the devil's gone overboard to try and distort every word that means extreme, full-on, totally given, as it's a bad thing. You know, because we see radical Muslims like, oh, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be like the equivalent of that in the Christian world. You know, I'm you know, bombing people, terrorist acts. Yeah, we don't do that. A radical Christian is not that. It's love that is the radical. It's obedience that is the radical side. If I could live my life over again, I would be a lot more radical. The secret to more radical, I'm going to say more childlikeness. Now, that's a strange thing, but I would say one of the things that causes us to live more radical is a childlike faith. When we are becoming more mature spiritually, we have a tendency oftentimes to dim the radical side. It's a weird thing. We get more head knowledge, more theological accuracy, and we have a tendency to dim down in the childlike, well, the Bible says it, I'm just going to do it. You know, the type of thing where if someone asks you for your, uh, you know, your, what is it, cloak or tunic, you give them your cloak as well, you know, whatever, however the phrase went on that. Well, who does that? You know, it's like, hey, well, well, yeah, you asked for it, sure, absolutely, you can have it. There are so many things in Scripture that if we actually just did them, a child sees it, simply put, I remember dealing with all the 18-year-olds when I was like 18 and there was like some 17-year-olds, 19-year-olds around me, and we were full in for Jesus, and the way we looked at Scripture was very different than the way I do now. Because now, if those guys came to me and said, well, how do you handle this Scripture? I'd be like, well, you have to be watchful not to go to an extreme. Okay, I mean, it's like almost default position because there are extremes. And there are ways that you can mishandle the text. And what's funny is we become so good at not mishandling the text that we don't live it out. And the text just says it. And Jesus was a lot more radical than we are. As the church is today, we're his body and we're not very much like him in the way he chose to live out his life. His disciples were a little shocked by his radical behavior, and then they sort of caught on, and you're going to see them start to do it too. When the Pentecost happens, something's going to happen in those guys, and they're going to live a lot more radical than we're living right now. In fact, when you realize that every single one of them was killed for their faith, and I know John wasn't killed but he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and pulled out unscathed. They didn't know what to do with him, so they exiled him to the island of Patmos. I would say he still lived in the same vibe, which led to them being killed. That's the way that they were living. And so I crave a similar pattern for us, not just for me, but for us. So more childlikeness. Matthew 10, 14 through 15 says, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for, such, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Now, here's what I want you to process. 
that there are two ways to encounter the truth of the kingdom of heaven. One, when you hear about the kingdom of heaven, even what I'm saying now, the way that Jesus lived, the way the apostles lived, they were bearers and witnesses of this kingdom. And there's this message that says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Pick up your cross. I mean, that, you know what that would sound like? It's basically like, choose to die, follow me. You're going to die, follow me. Well, who wants to come and follow a guy where you're just going to die when you follow him? And all of us need to realize we're the ones that raised our hand to this. Do we recognize what we have signed up for? Do we recognize what this means? That we are following a man who died on a cross and those that followed him died on crosses, were thrown off of buildings, dragged behind chariots, you know, cut to pieces. I mean, Do you realize who you follow? So that's the truth of the kingdom. How are we supposed to receive it? To receive it as a little child would receive it. We just trust. Oh, okay. Okay, most of us in here don't receive it as a little child. We, we think it through, and we evaluate. We make our charts, positives and negatives, and we weigh it. That's not how a little child processes. A little child receives. That word for receive is decomai. It means, translates to receive, yes, but maybe it would help if we understood it means to take with the hand. It's like, yeah, I'll take that. To take hold of, to grant access to a visitor, to not refuse friendship, to not reject. So it's the concept of someone coming to your house and you open up the door. You're hospitable. You're decomai. In other words, you receive them. You don't turn it away. And so when the truth of the kingdom of heaven comes, a little child is just told, yeah, when, when Jesus comes, let him in. And yet, some of us are like, well, okay, I want these truths out of the kingdom of heaven. Those can come in, but these are too radical. When in actuality, if you really want the kingdom of heaven, you open up the door and you allow in the more pleasant truths along with the harder truths. And just as a little child, you say, come on in. My home is your home. Matthew 10, 14 through 15. Let the, this is the same scripture we read. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive, decomai, the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So, I, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not take hold of, grant access to the full control of the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And so this is just where I want us to stop and evaluate. Do we have our filter in place that says, God, all that you want, you can do, except for this, 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 this. Let me get the rest of the list out. This, 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 this. And I've noticed that at different times in my life. God, I'll go anywhere for you. Just don't send me to North Korea. And just don't send me to Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan. Oh, and while we're talking about East Timor, and you know, while we're you know, on the discussion, you know, maybe not the you know, tropical zones of you know, like the Congo, but maybe more South Africa, zone of Africa, if you need to you know, send me there. And we are rather picky because we think we are the ones that define how God should use our life and our body. And that's not receiving the kingdom of heaven as a little child. Don't you realize that he purchased you? That he owns you? A little child could probably understand that maybe easier than we could. 
You are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. So give it to him. And as a result, allow God to turn up that knob of givenness, of yieldedness, of readiness, of obedience. When the Spirit of God speaks, you're quick to respond to it, as opposed to coming up with a thousand justifications of why this is an inconvenient time. Here's that same word, dekomai. Jesus is going to use it uh, in the same chapter later on. He who receives me receives him who sent me. You want the Father? Receive Jesus. Dekomai Jesus. Let him in. Let him into this house. I still remember A.W. Tozer describing uh, the life with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and he described it as us having keys and us having a house, and God comes to the door and is asking for entrance into the, what he purchased. It's his home, but we are in a position, almost like a gatekeeper, and it's important in as an act of our will to yield and to receive, to decomai. This, this action of decomai seems to be very, very significant in the inner workings of God in our life because we can choose to resist. We can choose to slam the door. We can choose to keep the door you know, try and hold it like this when, when God's like, hey, I'd sort of like to come in. Like, no, 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 no. We can resist the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Or we can allow that door to open to him and say, Jesus, I receive you. And in receiving Jesus, we receive the Father. In receiving the Father, we're receiving the Holy Spirit. We're receiving God in our life. This is his body. This is now his home. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Decomai. 1 Corinthians 6.19-20, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit or the house of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. This, this message is very simple. I said the same thing over and over and over again this whole time. However, if you were asked, how would you live your life different if you could? Or would you? Maybe your life's been lived fully in the right way. But if you could do it different. I still remember Leslie's dad sharing a story that so impacted him. When he was in some small group men's Bible study back in Indiana, and all of these old saints, you know, that all of the men looked up to, sort of the old guard were there in their, in their 80s, and they had grown kids. And the men sat around and said, so what have you learned from your life? What wisdom could, you, could we glean from you? And one of the men, in fact, I think he said, one of the men said it and all the men agreed. If I could live my life over, I would spend more time with my kids. It's statements like that that are actually very, very important for us to hear when we're young and not when we're old and have to go, amen, that would have been a good idea. We're all in a position right now to respond differently. We're not 94 ready to pass away. We're in a position where we actually can respond. We can decomai the kingdom of heaven at a greater level. We can say, yes, Lord. And we can allow the Spirit of God to turn up that volume knob on our radical to say, I want more of Jesus, and I want him to work through me in a greater way. No more excuses, Eric. The answer is yes, Lord. The second mile, grab the baton. So this comes from 
again, the website for Brother Andrew, and it's just a conversation that a young man, I think his name is Michael, is having with Brother Andrew, and this, this girl that's writing it, Sarah Cunningham, I don't know if that's her real name or not, but she's the one writing this article about what they're calling the second mile. Brother Andrew says, I just ran the first mile, now here's the baton. You guys run the second mile. Uh, and I love the picture, because when someone like this passes away, you don't drop the baton. You don't say, oh, I don't want to touch that. That led to all sorts of trials and tribulations for that guy. Jesus is holding out a baton too. It's called the Holy Spirit. It's like, hey, okay, I ran the first mile for you. Now I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Run! We're supposed to take this that he has given us. We're supposed to decomai that baton and say, okay, I receive it. I grip it. And then we need to run. And so this is the conversation. It's, It's a pretty cool one. So Martin, oh, his name was Martin, sorry guys, but Martin is one of his disciples, and he's hearing these stories, and he's just wishing he could have been back in the, in the 50s and the 60s when, when Brother Andrew was doing all these things. I wish I could have been there, Martin told Andrew. I wish I could have been a part of the early days to watch it get all get off the ground, to see it all unfold. Stop. Doesn't that sound like us with the church and the history of the church? It's like just to be back in the book of Acts. Oh, I wish I could be there. That's exactly what we feel too. A smile crept to Brother Andrew's face and he began to shake his head, his lips forming just one word, no. No, absolutely not, he repeated. He waved his hand, dismissing the idea. That work is already done. No, the biggest need in front of us is the work that is to come. You are part of this group of young people who will be our second wind. The next chapters are in your hands. You must run the second mile. That's us. We're the ones receiving the baton. We have inherited, we have grown up in a generation that is rather weak, and the church is soft, and the church is politically correct these days. And to actually live as the church of Jesus Christ, you really have to buck the system. And you don't have a lot of camaraderie around you. You have a lot of concerned people. I I wouldn't say that if I were you. Yeah, I wouldn't ever, don't do that. You don't want to speak on these things. Don't preach on that. Don't ever mention this scripture. Life will be a lot easier for you. We are following in the wake of the historic church, not just Brother Andrew, but men and women who have given up their lives with singing, with rejoicing, and they have handed a baton to us. And we represent what, the second wind? We represent that second mile. We represent the runners who have been handed something. And though we live in a time where when we're running, everyone's throwing trash onto the track, trying to hit us with rocks and rotten fruit. Well, by the way, if you talk to our predecessors, they might say, yeah, well, it was a lot worse for us. We were running with lions and bears and panthers trying to eat us. It's like, okay, all right, right, maybe this isn't as bad. However, we have a task, and instead of spending all our time reasoning, postulating why we shouldn't need to do it, trying to come up with perverted scripture readings to justify our non-activity, to just allow the scriptures to communicate to us afresh, it's you we're talking about, Eric Ludi. It's you that is the body of Christ. It's you that has the baton in your hand. You have the ancient truth of the gospel, the one means of salvation for this dying world. Run! 
it's not just me, it's you. This is us. So instead of excusing ourselves, let's be freshly inspired by the lives of those that have gone before us. And we have one that is very fresh. And he lived a life that is not just amazing, but remarkable. And even he is saying, wow, I could have turned up the knob higher. So Brother Andrew, one of his famous quotes was, we have to live a life that is more revolutionary than that of the revolutionaries. So in his time, remember this is the times of you know, Stalin, uh, then all that is going to follow in the wake of the Soviet Union. He, there were revolutionaries back in the age of World War I and World War II that he's grown up around, and that's what they were known as. And it's like, if you're going to change the world, you have to be more radical than the revolutionaries, which for most of us is just like, oh, extreme language, yeah, that sounds uncomfortable to me. I'm not one of those guys that really wants to be called a revolutionary. I don't really want to be called a radical. It always sounds like a put-down. You ever notice that? It's like when someone calls you a prophet. That's usually not a compliment because it means like a long, bony finger that is saying things that are harsh. Well, I don't want to be that. I want to be Mr. Nice Guy. I'm, I'm the golden retriever. My tail is wagging right now. I'm going, <laughs> I don't want to be the bad guy, but I'm willing to do what is necessary, and if I lose the good opinion of the world around me, but I can honor Jesus Christ in this hour, in this generation, I'm game. So I'm going to take that quote, and we're going to change it a little. Here's the quote. We have to live a life that is more revolutionary than that of the revolutionaries. Who said that? Brother Andrew. So let's take Brother Andrew's inspiring quote, and let's Brother Andrewize it. We have to live a life that is more radical than that of Brother Andrew. In other words, what are we looking at to say, okay, well, you know, if, if, if you said, I need to live a life more radical than everyone else in this church building, it's actually not that impressive of a statement. However, when you take the one guy that's been in the room with us today, you know, outside of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but Brother Andrew, and you were to say, okay, I like that guy. Wow, look how he lived. And even he is saying, I would be more radical, which means that if we're going to be inspired by his life, what do we need to conclude? We have to live a life that is more radical than that of Brother Andrew. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but I would say the starter package is us saying, yes, Lord. Lord, I don't want to have excuses. I don't want to spend any more time justifying why I don't do things. I want you to work in my life, to move me forward unto a life of greater grace, greater strength, greater obedience, greater sensitivity to your spirit. We got one shot at this thing. One shot. I do not want to get to my 94th year and look back and say, oh, I knew I should have given more. I want to give more. I don't even know how to package that for us where I know what that looks like in our generation. I just know that if each of us does it, the world will change. Father, thank you for the life of Brother Andrew. Thank you for what you did in that man and how he reminded us of you. Lord, we need more of you in us. And so we decomai, we receive as little children with a simple faith, the fact that you want to do great things in this earth. 
and you want to do great things in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in and through our families, in and through our lives and our ministries. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would receive you afresh today with simple childlike faith, without justifications, without rationalizations, but with faith to say, if you said it, you will do it. If you said that we belong to you, we belong to you. You deserve it, Lord Jesus. Are you not worthy to receive the reward of your suffering? So, Lord, here we are. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we give ourselves to you. It's in the precious name we pray. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.